Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would talk about Christine Collins, who I will contend is an American hero who we don't talk enough about. I was prompted to talk about Christine Collins because a patron wrote in, and I'll just read that email here. I'd just like you to know that I listen to your podcast throughout the day while I'm while I'm in welding class. She's in welding class. That's pretty fascinating. I feel like I'm learning so much. I graduated from college with a less than useful degree a couple years ago and decided that I needed a more steady career, thus welding school. However, I realized that I was starting to feel stagnant, uneducated, and more depressed and anxious than usual. That has all turned around by listening to your podcast. I've learned... I've started seeing a therapist since I started listening because I realized it was something I desperately needed but never pursued because of the the stigma my family and friends have regarding therapy. Kirk, you definitely removed that stigma from my mind, and I am starting to feel so much better, and I want to thank you for it. So the patron goes on to list a whole bunch of movies and TV shows that she wanted us to talk about. But she uh, and one stuck out to me, and it was a movie called Changeling, and and it's starring Angelina Jolie, and it's about the story of Christine Collins. So that's why I'm doing this episode is because the patron wrote in requesting that. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I'm going to talk about the movie just for a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about the full story of Christine Collins. And at at the end, I'm going to provide some commentary about our society and sexism and the police, you know, system and psychiatry and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so first, just a little bit about the movie Changeling, which came out in 2008. It was directed by Clint Eastwood. It's sort of weird because I don't even remember this movie coming out in a theater. Directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Angelina Jolie. You would think that this movie would be much more popular, but uh, I don't remember hearing about it. Uh, Maybe I was just under a rock at the time. (laughs) But it was written by J. Michael Straczynski, who has written many, many, many things. Uh, Notably, he's written a lot of comics for Marvel and DC, which is interesting to me. In film, he's written, he wrote Changeling, uh, and he also wrote Thor, and he also wrote World War Z. In television, (laughs) this is the best part, in television, J. Michael Straczynski, who who wrote uh, for the movie Changeling, in the 80s, he wrote for He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, which was a TV show that I was watching after middle school every day. It's just amazing that he wrote for He-Man. That's crazy. He wrote for She-Ra around that time. He wrote for the second Twilight Zone series in the 80s. He wrote for the real Ghostbusters. He wrote for Murder, She Wrote, Walker, Texas Ranger, Babylon 5, and then more recently, Sense8. Anyone seen that show since I, I really liked it. It was um, very original, I thought. Okay, so the movie Changeling, uh, which is a terrible name, which I'll get into more in a second, but it stars Angelina Jolie, John Malkovich, and um, sort of as a cameo uh, that the blonde 
woman comic from Garfunkel and Oates, you know, Garfunkel and Oates, the blonde woman she's in, she's, she's this evil nurse in it. It's kind of jarring to see her like that, but Changeling was nominated for a number of Golden Globes and Oscars and many other awards. Angelina Jolie was the best. She won the Best Actress Award from the African American Film Credits Association Awards, by the way. It got 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'd give it about a six, a five or a six. It's, it's a fascinating story, but the movie is pretty slow. It's two, it's almost two and a half hours long. <laughs> and I just don't understand why people are making movies so long these days. I, I just, I, I remember, remember when movies were just 90 minutes or under 90 minutes? I mean, two and a half hours long for a, a, a story like this, it's just way too long. It, it should have been edited way down. But it's an interesting story. It's worth seeing. It's a very interesting period piece. It shows L.A. in the 30s or 20s, late 20s, 1920s. And it, it, it's just a, it's a fascinating – I, I just love period pieces. I just love seeing the way things were at a particular time. Angelina Jolie is amazing in it. And Clint Eastwood delivers another solid movie. Okay, let's get into the story here. All right, so Christine Collins, our hero, our protagonist in this story, she grew up in Seattle in the early 1900s. At some point, she moved to L.A. She married a not-so-great guy. They had a kid, Walter. Her husband, the not-so-great guy, was sentenced to Folsom State Prison for armed robbery, and he soon died in prison, which brings us to 1928. Christine was a single mother living in L.A. with her one son, Walter, who was nine years old. She was working as a supervisor at a telephone operator station. They show this in the movie. It's just fascinating to see, you know, they have that big switchboard with all those, uh, you know, plugs that the operators, they're all women, by the way, with those headsets. And they're, you know, back in the day, you would call the operator and you'd say, can you connect me with so-and-so? You didn't just dial something which I just can't imagine just how complicated that would be. I mean, every single telephone has its own physical plug that someone has to actually connect you to. It's crazy. And they also showed that when the supervisors, because she was one of the supervisors, they have to travel around the, you know, the various different operators. They have to travel the, the floor. And to make it easier, all the supervisors have roller skates on <laughs> and it's just a part of their job is to roller skate around the, you know the the office so that it's supposedly easier on roller skates which seems questionable to me but i don't know um i wonder if people do that today you know i wonder if people have like those hoverboards and they just move around you know warehouses or something i suppose i could see that anyway um so 1928, Christine, single mother, she is a supervisor at a telephone operator station. One day, her nine-year-old son, Walter, went missing while she was at work. And this disappearance uh, received nationwide attention for, for some reason. I don't really know why the disappearance of, of Walter Collins received nationwide attention, but it did. The Los Angeles Police Department, or the LAPD, followed up on hundreds of leads without success. So they really tried to find Walter, and they couldn't find him. And at this time, 
and to some extent throughout history, the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, is notorious for being a-holes and for having a lot of corruption. And it was particularly bad in the 20s. So that's just uh, an important thing to, to remember. And the public knew it. The public had very little faith in the LAPD. And were, you know, a lot of people were speaking out and protesting against the LAPD. So the LAPD was actually looking for a high profile case that they could succeed at so that they could win back public opinion. And so the, the, the finding of Walter Collins was something that they really focused on because, you know, they're saying if we could find Walter Collins and publicize that we found him, then the, the public will love us again and we can go on with our corruption ways. And so that's why they really locked into it. But they couldn't find Walter. But then one day, five months after Walter disappeared, a boy claiming to be Walter was found all the way in the Midwest in Illinois. And a public reunion was organized by the police at a train station in which, you know, they, they brought all the press. They, br- they brought Christine Collins. Uh, the boy is getting off of the train. And the police plan on having this wonderful moment with the chief of police there and the captain there. And they're all in there in their uniforms. And they're, they're going to reunite this woman with her son. And the police are going to go, look what we did. We're, we're awesome even though they had little to do actually with, with finding the boy. But uh, so at the train sta- station, as soon as the boy walks off the train and Christine sees him, Christine Collins immediately know, knows that this boy is not her son. And she turns to the police captain, Captain Jones, and, and says, that's, I'm sorry, but that's not my son. Uh, you know, I don't know who this boy is. And the boy is saying, yes, I'm, I'm Walter Collins. And she's like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're an imposter. I don't even know who you are. You don't look anything like my son. And the police captain is sitting there, Captain Jones. He's sitting there and he's like, okay, oh crap. I have all these, this press and the, the public already hates us. And the, the, the public and the press already think we're jokes and incompetent. So right here, me, Captain Jones, in front of all this press, in front of all these people, I am now faced with a humiliating prospect of the mother saying, you found not my son. You, you have an imposter here. Not only have you not yet found my son because you're incompetent as a police force, but you also are staging this ridiculous farce you know, so Captain Jones is, is freaking out naturally. And so he turns to Christine and he tries to convince her that it is her son. So Captain Jones in that moment needs Christine to agree that this is her son and to, to take her home so he could, you know, wash his hands of this, get the good publicity and move on with his day. So they kept press, you know, the captain and other police officers are like, you know, hey, just, just, uh, so the, the press hasn't, they're not around yet. They're still kind of left far away from the, re, the initial reunion. So it's just the boy, the mom, and a couple other people. And the, you know, the cops are like, look, how about you just take him home? Just admit that this is your son. Take him home. 
and you know this boy needs a home and try him out for a couple of weeks you know just 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 give us a couple of weeks you know and christine's like uh and you know you just have to think about yourself in that situation this is before the internet before anyone really knew how to i, I imagine people today are more savvy they're not very savvy but i would say more savvy about the press then and the media than people were in the late 1920s and so you just have to think you're a woman you're you just earned the right to vote you, you know you're still a second class citizen you're a single mother you don't you know have any support and these people are barking down you know your neck saying hey, take take this boy home this boy you know just admit it and so so she admits it she she says uh yeah i okay fine i'll 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 take him home and give him a try and also the, it should be noted that the cops are telling her look it's been 5 months he he he's changed he's been traumatized or you've been traumatized, you know, the boy's been traumatized, he looks different. You've been traumatized, you can't recognize your own son. So it's, you're, you know, something wrong with you. This is your son. And just imagine you're that cop in that moment. What kind of a a-hole do you have to be to do that to somebody? Just to save your own reputation. And how stupid are you? <laughs> I mean, what do you think is going to happen, Captain Jones? Okay, she's going to she, she'll agree to it now, but she's going to go home and she's going to say, um, I still don't have my son. And now I'm taking care of this random kid that, you know, this doesn't seem right to me. What do you think is going to happen, Captain Jones? Do you think she's just going to go away? It, it's just ludicrous. I mean, one thing that they should have done if I was, you know, 2020 Captain Jones is look. Have a reunion, make sure it's good, then call the the press and say, hey, you know what, blah, blah, blah. Don't, at the reunion, have the press there because, you know, you obviously have to think of the optics if things go south on you. And so it's just, and also, as I'll get into later in terms of the sexism and the police brutality, or, you know, police uh, overextending themselves with their power, it's it's just emblematic of that. That, that you could, as a police officer, believe you have so much power, you can just tell a woman, look, I realize this is not your son, but I'm telling you this is your son. <laughs> and you're going to take this boy home as if he's your son, and you're going to shut up. I mean, just imagine how much ongoing power you think you have to be able to do such a thing. I mean, just as a sort of analogy, imagine you go to the grocery store and this woman, you're just a customer or no, let's say you're a manager of a, of a, of a grocery store and a woman runs up to you and says, I, I lost my son. I lost my son. And then all of a sudden you just see a random boy and you say, Hey, I found your son. He's right over here. And she turns to you and says, uh, no, that's not my son. And then you proceed to beat her down mentally until she agrees that this is her son. And she drives home with this random boy. <laughs> I mean, you know, no one would do that. They would say, that's crazy. There's no way I'm going to get away with that. Well, at the time, not only did he think he'd get away with it, but he basically almost did get away with it. So, all right. 
So um, she takes him home. Christine takes him home. And she starts wondering if she actually was going crazy. And she starts wondering if it was actually her son. Because, you know, it's been five months and boys change over five months. You never know. And he did look vaguely similar to to her son. But a mother knows, you know, that someone's not her son. So she, start, so she starts trying to figure out if this boy is actually her son. Or another way to put it, she starts trying to prove that, you know, she starts trying to definitively prove that it's not her son. So she figured out that this mystery boy is three inches shorter than her son. So it's like, you know, trauma doesn't cause people to shrink. Also, she discovered that, the, uh, that this mystery boy is circumcised and Walter was not circumcised. And th- there's a scene in the movie, which I don't know if it actually happened, but she's saying, you know, he's shorter. And this doctor, actually a psychiatrist, a doc, physician or psychiatrist tells her, look, trauma can cause a kid to, sh- to shrink. Trauma can, trauma can cause... Also, maybe whoever abducted him decided to circumcise him because, you know, circumcision is, is, more, uh, is, is more acceptable. And so maybe they thought you were neglecting your kid by not circumcising your kid. So I don't know if that actually happened, but anyway. Uh, she also, I know this to be true because it's in the documents, but she took the, this mystery boy to the dentist and the, de- and the dentist looked at his teeth and looked at Walter's past records and realized that this mystery boy was not Walter and could never have been Walter based on what he found in the, in the mystery boy's mouth. You know, dental records are like a fingerprint, right? It's very specific to the individual. Also, teachers and friends of Walter went on record that this new boy was not Walter. So for several weeks, Christine Collins kept telling Captain Jones, look, this is not my child. And it's just interesting, and I don't know how accurate it is, but it, it seemed accurate to me, that today, if if this had happened you wouldn't necessarily go to the police. You'd go to the, you go directly to the press or you would go to a social worker or something. But the way they depict it in the movie, it's as if the police force is the only people that you can go to in a situation like this. You know, the captain Jones screws her over and she, and Christine Collins naturally doesn't agree, doesn't trust captain Jones. But every time she uh, is pleading, she keeps pleading with Captain Jones. Look, you have to understand me that this is not my son. And Captain Jones keeps saying, look, it's, this is your son. Shut up. You're being hysterical. In today's world, I would just assume someone would go again to the press or they would tweet about it or something, or they would go to a social worker or they would hire a lawyer or something. And so I don't know if that's a, if that's a sign of the times. Just, there's just not enough institutions around to help people in situations like this. I don't know. All right. So I'll go on with the story and provide some commentary. But first, let's take a break. Okay, we're back. If you haven't already become a patron, do so now. Become a patron. All the cool kids are becoming patrons these days of this podcast. So do it. Also, tell a friend. Spread the word. Also, rate us on iTunes. If you rate us on iTunes, or you already have, send me an email at contact at psychology in Seattle, and I'll send you some swag in the mail. Okay, so let's go on with our story here. So, for several weeks, Christine Collins keeps going back to Captain Jones saying, look, this is not my boy. 
I know you keep claiming this is my son, but this is not my son. And I have tons of proof. He's three inches shorter. He he's circumcised. The dentist is going on record saying this can't be Walter. His teachers, his friends, everyone is saying this is not, including his own mother, me, are saying this is not Walter. The only two people that are saying this is Walter is this mystery boy is claiming he's Walter and you are refusing to believe me. You're the only one that's, you know, she keeps going back and, um, and he just, you know, Captain Jones just keeps saying, look, you're stressed out. You're being hysterical. You need to go home and, and be a good mother to your son. You've been traumatized. You, you know, there's something wrong with your brain. Uh, go home, take care of your son, leave me alone. So, it, you know, just imagine you're Christine in this situation. Your own son has been, you know, is, is, has disappeared and you fear the worst for him. And you now have this mystery boy living in your house, claiming to be Walter and, you know, he keep the, the boy keeps up the ruse. He keeps up, you know, like, yeah, I'm Walter. And but yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, mommy. You know, I, I'm, I'm your son. I'm Walter Collins. Imagine having this, you know, little psychopath living in your house and you have to feed him and bathe him and take care of him and take him to school. And, and he's just like, hi, mommy. And I mean, just imagine how, what of a, what kind of a weird twilight zone nightmare that would be. You know, uh, all you parents out there, I know from the survey that about, I don't know, a third of you have kids, if you know, something like that, maybe half. We say, so you parents out there, imagine one day your kid is abducted, heaven forbid, and the cops force you to take a kid who's posing as your kid, and you now have to take care of this kid. And, you know, it's one thing to just take care of a kid in need. It's another thing to take care of a kid who is psychopathically lying about being your son and refuses to tell the truth. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. And you keep, you know, so imagine you're Christine, you keep going back to the cops. You're like, um, everyone, teachers, friends, me, you know, the dentist, everyone is saying this is not Walter. And you keep telling me this is Walter. And I need you to stop doing that. And the captain, you know, the captain and the other cops are like, uh, that's Walter. <laughs> and they're, and you're just like, how do you know when everyone, you never met Walter, everyone who's met Walter has said, this is not Walter. How does that work that you can just tell me that? And I need you to stop and I need you to, uh, find my son. That's another thing about this. I don't know if it's just particular to the movie, but it seems accurate is that, you know, today when a child goes missing, of course, people go to the police and say, look, you know, can you find my, find my son? But I think most of us understand that the cops aren't gods and they only have so much resources and, and it's hard to find people who've been abducted. I mean, if, if someone's been abducted and they're, you know, crossing state lines, it's really hard to, to catch up to them. Plus if they've been killed, which is usually the case in situations like this, um, it's, it's, and the kids buried somewhere. It's, it's hard to know where to look. And so it's just interesting how, you know, in this, she just keeps going back to this, to the cops and saying, can you please find my son? And whereas today, I think most people would say, 
uh, yeah, absolutely go to the cops, but I'm also going to go on TV and I'm going to, you know, create a Facebook page and I'm going to start combing the streets and I'm going to put, put out flyers. And I, you know, most people I think will, most communities will just kind of circumvent the police, if that makes any sense. But she just keeps going back to the cops and they just keep telling her to go home. So, at this point, the Christine is starting to gain some traction in the community, and people are starting to listen to her. And um, important figures, like this one reverend who hates the LAPD and considers the LAPD to be corrupt, this white reverend in LA has a radio show, and he, and he is... Um, starting to look into this Christine Collins thing as a example of how the LAPD is uh, incompetent and corrupt. And so the captain, Captain Jones is starting to worry like, Oh crap, everything's coming home to roost and I'm going to get called out here and everyone's going to know what I did. And I'm going to go from the, the captain who found the missing boy and reunited it, you know, reunited him with his mother. I'm going to go from the hero to the zero in, in that they're all going to find out that I've, that I've been faking this whole thing and forcing this woman to take care of the son and refusing to listen. And, and I'm going to, you know, this is going to be awful for me. So captain Jones, we, you know, just imagine what do you do in a situation like that as a cop? Well, back then, there was this thing in California called Code 12. And this Code 12 was something that a police, any police officer essentially could just go to a psychiatric hospital and say they, they could grab someone uh, unlawfully, in my estimation. They could grab someone, bring them to the psychiatric hospital, claim a Code 12, and then the psychiatric hospital would immediately basically imprison them in the psychiatric hospital. And that's what the captain does. He has Christine committed to the psychiatric ward under a code 12, which was a term used to commit someone who was being difficult for the cops. Whenever the cops had someone who was being difficult, they would give them a code 12 and the psychiatrist would immediately comply. So the psychiatrist, they evaluate her and Christine says, um, I'm not insane. I'm perfectly sane. The only reason why I'm here is because Captain Jones is annoyed with me because I keep telling him that this boy is not my son. And so the psychiatrists listen and they say, okay, well, you're paranoid because you believe that the cops are against you. And, and that's crazy because cops are not against you. And also you're claiming that your son is not your son. That's crazy talk. Your son is your son. And you're, you must be schizophrenic and you're paranoid. So therefore you're insane. And now we're going to imprison you in this hospital and they make her take psychotropics and she becomes very upset naturally because she's, she's not only been ignored and she's not only had to endure all this BS, she's not only had to take care of this psychopathic kid, but now she's being imprisoned in a mental hospital and she's being given uh, medications that she doesn't need. And she's held for several days. Now, this second story is happening in which 
some cops were investigating a totally different case. Not the Walter Collins case, not the Christine Collins case, but a totally different case. And they discover uh, in their investigation that a man, Gordon Northcott, who was 19 at the time, and his mother, Gordon Northcott, <clears throat> and his mother, Sarah, have been killing young boys in the area. They, they live in this town a little bit east of L.A., and in their investigation, it's discovered that Walter Collins might have been one of the boys that was killed by Gordon Northcott and his mother, Sarah. Gordon and his mother were Canadians living in California, east of L.A., and they were chicken ranchers. And it was discovered through this, through this totally separate investigation that 11 boys were abducted, raped, and killed by Northcott and his mother, Sarah. Uh, I think 11, I saw the reports of less than 11, but a number of boys. And so just a terrible story, you know, uh, they show this in the movie. They would actually imprison the boys in the chicken coops. And, you know, the kids were abducted by Gordon Northcott and the mother. And again, sexually assaulted and then killed with a, with an ax actually. Uh, and they made this, this other older boy do, do terrible things to the younger boys. It's, it's really just awful. But anyway, it's assumed by many that Walter was one of these boys and, and he's, he's in fact dead. So when the LAPD discovered these serial killers, they, turn to this mystery boy and they start questioning him perhaps for the first time. They're like, Hey, it's now discovered that Walter might be one of these uh, victims and he's dead. Who are you? And he admits, uh, yeah, I'm not Walter Collins. <laughs> he said that his mother died and his father remarried some mean woman. And so he ran away. He said, he was lying about being Walter Collins because it was a national case, you know, his famous case. And he wanted to be sent to Hollywood so he could meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix. Tom Mix was a famous Western movie actor in the twenties, sort of like a early John Wayne or something. And so this kid was like, Ooh, if, if I fake, so I, I ran away from home. I don't like my mean stepmom. And if I fake that I'm Walter Collins, they'll send me to live with this woman who lives in L.A., which is near Hollywood, and maybe I'll get to meet Tom Mix, my favorite actor. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, you know, kids, I guess, right? It also just kind of shows the power of Hollywood at the time and how uh, it had you know, quite an effect on people back then and still does, obviously. Um, so... Uh, even though the cops realize, oh, shit, we have Christine Collins and a Code 12 in the psychiatric hospital. And now it looks like, uh, you know, the Collins boy is dead and this mystery boy has just admitted, you know, he's not Walter Collins. Well, they leave her in the hospital for a number of days after that just to spite her or something, just to can just to sort of dig their graves more. I don't know, but uh, just to prove that how much of an a-hole, you know, it's just, it's just proof that they weren't actually thinking she was insane. 
they, you know, it was clearly something they were doing to shut her up or to intimidate her or something. And I'm just guessing that, and they don't talk about this in this case and they don't talk about it in the movie, but you just have to assume that many, many other women and men probably too, but particularly women were being treated this way and were being told to shut up, you know, and were sent on a code 12 to psychiatric hospitals when uh, the cops just wanted to shut someone up or intimidate them. I mean, imagine yourself, you know, you get into kind of a conflict or you, you start to complain about the cops. And then one day the cops just take you to a psych ward and you're involuntarily committed for a month. You go home, you're going to be like, uh, I guess I'm, I'm going to shut up about that because, uh, look at the power the police have to ruin my life. So I guess I'm just going to slink off into the background. You know, you just imagine there were hundreds, if not thousands of others being treated this way and they didn't come forward because they were afraid. So after a while, uh, they, they do release her from the mental hospital. And a while later after that, Christine Collins files a lawsuit against Captain Jones and she won the lawsuit and was awarded about $11,000, which is about $160,000 in t- today's money, which, you know, is, um, is a good chunk of money. But Captain Jones never paid it. That's the one thing that I just always found find bizarre about how our legal system works is, you know, you could sue someone. Someone could be found, you know, at fault, and then they're ordered to pay in this case, $11,000 to, you know, Captain Jones is ordered to pay $11,000 to Christine Collins. And then if you don't pay, there's there's no real consequence to that. And I just think that, that there's something wrong with that. When I went to small claims court because this guy had, I was parked, I think I've talked about this before on the podcast, I was parked in my car, just sitting in my car in a parking spot. And this guy in this big truck hit me while I was, I, I, my car was off. I was just sitting in the parking lot talking with a friend in college and, you know, midday and this truck just hits, hits me and like it, it tore the back bumper off my little Honda Civic. And I told him, okay. And he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, okay, well, uh, you know, no reason to call the cops. Uh, just give me your name and number and, you know, here, I'll, I'll get an estimate and you can send me the money. So I get an estimate, $400. I sent him the bill and he says, oh, I'm not going to pay it. It's not my fault. Uh, I talked to my wife and she told me that I'm not liable for that. And I'm like, how could, how could you not be liable for, I was, I was sitting I wasn't moving. (laughs) And he's like, well, you know, I just, I think you were parked wrong. And I'm thinking "Uh, that doesn't make any sense. You, regardless of, I can be parked completely wrong. It doesn't give you the right to run me over, you know? And so I took him to small claims court and, uh, I almost lost the case, which is crazy because the judge was an idiot because a lot of judges are are idiots in my experience. And I'm making my case, uh, which seems just complete. And, and the guy isn't refuting anything The the guy uh, who I'm suing, he's, this is back in college when $400 was a, a lot of money to me at the time. And I mean, it still is, but, but as I mean, I'm talking about a lot of money at the time, you know? Um, and so, uh, it was, you know, it was a big deal to me. And 
so I'm looking at the guy and I'm, and I'm, and I'm making my case. I'm, I'm I was parked and this guy, he hit me and the, the guy uh, who was in the truck, he, he's saying, well, the, you Kirk, you were sort of parked a little, little askew, a little angular in the parking spot. And so that's why I hit you. And, and then I said, well, but I was completely within the lines and I wasn't that much askew. And even if I was askew, that doesn't give you the right to hit my car, but I was completely within the lines. And then the, then the judge starts saying, huh? So Kirk, were you a little askew? And I'm like, well, to my memory, yeah, I was a little, I was a little diagonal in, in the parking spot, but I was clearly within the lines and no one refuted that. And the judge is like, huh? Well, if you're a little angular, I don't know if I can help you here. And I'm just thinking, what? I made a few more points and the judge said, oh, okay, I guess I'll rule in favor of you. And I'm just like, you guess you'll rule in favor. Like, this is, this is like a, a, the most obvious case in the world. Why are we even here? And why were you even entertaining this guy? Um, and anyway, so it, they ruled in my favor. And then, so I'm like, okay, I won. Great. So now I'm going to get my 400 bucks. Nope. I, he, he, he refused to pay. And so then I went back to court and I, I was like, um, and so just think of all the time spent involved in this. And you have to pay fees, by the way, you know, small claims court, you, you have to pay legal fees to just get your day in court. And I go to court and they're like, well, so yeah, the judge you know, ruled in your favor in small claims court, but there's, but there's no mandate that the person has to pay it or there's no consequence if the person doesn't pay it. You have to go back to court again to impose some kind of sanction on the person. And I'm just thinking, why is this a two-step process? It should be a, you know, right away they should say, okay, judge rules and the court rules in favor of the plaintiff, you have to pay $400. And if you don't, your wages will, you know, some kind of, they should just do it right then. So there I am thinking, okay, I've won in court and, and yet, and I'm still not going to get my money. And right now it's like three years later <laughs> And my car is still in shambles, by the way. I, I duct taped my bumper to my car, um, which wasn't pretty. But eventually the whole thing just fell off. And uh, and so I just drove my crappy Honda Civic that didn't have a bumper. And cops would pull me over and say, um, you realize that you can't be driving this car without a bumper. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm really sorry about that. Anyway, so um, eventually... Years later, the dude paid me and gave me an extra $20, by the way. And he's like, hey, I just wanted to say I'm sorry. My wife really convinced me and, you know, you were right all along. I should have paid you from the beginning. So, which brings me back to this situation with Christine Collins in which she was, uh, you know, the court ruled in her favor and said, yep. Yeah, Captain Jones was obviously uh, negligent here and needs to pay $11,000. And yet Captain Jones never paid her. <laughs> I just think, oh, I can relate to you, Christine Collins, in that way at the very least. Okay, so I'm going to go on with the story and provide some commentary, but let's go to a break. Okay, we're back. So, uh, so again, the lawsuit uh, was awarded you know, the the court ruled in her favor that Captain Jones should pay. He never paid. 
And to me, the big question is, and you know, my ignorance is probably showing through here, but I don't understand why Christine didn't sue the LAPD because they would likely have more money to pay and would likely pay the, their debts. But I don't understand why she was specifically suing Captain Jones. I mean, the LAPD, Captain Jones was, was working as a police officer. He wasn't just a citizen doing bad things. He was, you know, working on behalf of the police department. So it doesn't, I just don't understand why she didn't, you know, sue the police department. Anyway, it appears to me, and this is just my speculation, that Captain Jones was scapegoated by the LAPD, even though Jones was just a small part of a larger corrupt system. Um, it should be noted that Captain Jones and the chief of police, who was also pretty heavily involved in this uh, fiasco, the captain and the chief were demoted. Uh, they weren't fired, which is interesting. They were just merely demoted, which is some justice, but they were later reinstated <laughs> as chief of police and captain. <sighs> so no real consequences for those guys. However, one success, the California state legislature later made it illegal for the police to commit someone to a psychiatric facility without a warrant. This warrant, I'm guessing, involves a judge getting a competent psychiatrist to provide a report demonstrating the need for an involuntary commitment, which is similar to how it's done today in most states, if not all states, I'm not sure. Also, at the end of this, Northcott, Gordon Northcott, was executed a few years later at the age of 23 for his uh, involvement in the killings. And his mother spent 12 years in prison. It should also be noted that Walter's body was never found. They found the bodies of other kids, but they never found Walter's body. So it's unclear if Northcott even murdered Walter. There was, there was evidence suggesting that Walter was indeed killed by Northcott, but there was also evidence that Walter was never even abducted by Northcott. Or if Walcott, or if Northcott did abduct him, there's evidence that Walter got away, actually. So Christine Collins, having never found the body or even had like uh, a confession from Northcott saying that he did indeed kill Walter, she spent the rest of her life hoping for his return. The town where the murders took place east of L.A. was originally called Wineville, Wineville, California, near L.A. And the case was so famous nationwide that Wineville decided to change their name, and they changed it to Mira Loma, which is, again, east of L.A. So the movie title, I just want to talk about that for a second. It's called Changeling. And this is, uh, the changeling is, the title was derived from a European folk story of some sort in which fairies would steal a child and leave behind a changeling to pose and fake that they're the, the real child. And the writer only used this changeling as a temporary title because he, he didn't necessarily like the title. He's just like, well, I'll just name it changeling, but for sure we'll name it something else later. But for some reason, it, it, it stuck. I, I, I think they should have changed it to something else. Changeling sounds like a science fiction movie to me. It doesn't sound like a story about a woman in the 20s who is made to take care of a random kid. <clears throat> um, 
and it probably hurt them in the box office. It's just a guess. I mean, what would I call it? You could just call it Christine Collins, or you could call it, I don't know, Walter Collins. <laughs> I don't know. What would you call it? Uh, what would be a snappy title? I'm not very good at this sort of thing. You could call it like hoping for return. <laughs> okay, maybe Changeling is a good is a good uh, title. Okay, so now let's get into the commentary. The first thing we should talk about here is obvious, and that is sexism. There are many official documents of this case because there are a lot of court hearings and a lot of other kinds of things, and so. Many quotes that you can find from the cops and from the psychiatrists indicate that these men were blatantly abusing their power against women, calling them hysterical, accusing Christine Collins of being quote unquote independent, right? Because she didn't, she wasn't married or she didn't have a man, uh, you know, to oversee her or something, you know, you independent women with all your independent hysterical ways um, you know, one, one of the ways of looking at this through a sexist lens is you have this random boy who is somewhere around 10 years old, but he's, he's, he's male, right? So this boy, a male boy is saying, I am Walter Collins and this grown woman, but a woman, a female is saying, this is not Walter Collins. It's just interesting that the police and the press and the public or the psychiatrists, they would say, well, this, this 10 year old kid is a, is a boy, is a female, is a male. This, and therefore his word is more credible than this adult female. You know, it's just, it's just an interesting way of looking at it that if it, if the genders were reversed and it was a man and looking for his daughter, I just wonder if things would have played out differently. Anyway, women at the time and still are, but particularly back then, were seen as fragile and prone to hysteria. If you want to hear more about hysteria, listen to the premium episode about his hysteria. I think I talked for like three and a half hours about hysteria and the history of it. It goes way back to the to the ancient Egyptians. Um. You know, it's the whole idea of, well, you know, when women are saying things that annoy me and annoy us men, it's probably just female emotions getting in the way and she's probably just being hysterical. So, you know, let's just pat her on the head and send her on her way. You know, we, we've progressed since then, right? But we still live in a sexist culture and we have a ways to go. But it, it's interesting to see that portrayed in this story. The second thing aside from sexism that we need to talk about is police power. The film quotes cheat the chief of police, James Davis. This is a quote from him in terms of, uh, just as a, it's a quote that is emblematic of the sort of rampant power that the police had back then. And, uh, we're, and we're not afraid to flaunt it. He said, we will hold trial on gunmen in the streets of Los Angeles. I want them brought in dead, not alive. And I will reprimand any officer who shows the least bit of mercy to a criminal, unquote. So he's quite clearly saying 
that as a police force, they do not have to follow the law. They don't have to arrest people and bring them before a court of law that the police force has the right to execute people in the streets, which was happening at the time. And not only do the police have a right, but if he finds any of his police officers not immediately executing bad guys on the street, then he, they will get in trouble. And just imagine the amount of horrific racist sort of stuff that was happening. I mean, the police in general are racist today. Imagine what they were in the 1920s and imagine what was happening to white or to black people and Mexicans in LA at the time by these white cops. I mean, it's just, it's uh, just mind boggling to think about. So, um, so the police powers also shown in this code 12 thing, you know, they, uh, they had other examples of code 12s being used on, women who were, uh, you know, so a cop goes home, gets drunk, beats his wife. And then the wife goes to the police and says, uh, my husband's beating me. And the police force says, okay, code 12 on that woman, because we protect our own and, and, uh, blah, blah, blah. And there's many other examples of this, of this code 12. I mean, it's just, again, an example of police power running out of control. And here's my main point is this is what happens when you don't have real oversight, when you don't have real consequences. I've talked about this before, and I'll briefly summarize things I've talked about before. I had a client, a, a teenage boy, once. I was working actually with the whole family, so there, there are two boys, a middle, middle school-age kid and a high school-age boy and then a mother. And the, um, the younger boy had made a false claim that the older boy had sexually abused him. The younger boy was just trying to manipulate things. And so the cops decided to investigate, which is fine. Good. Investigate. And the cop, this one cop, uh, this detective contacts me and proceeds to intimidate me to tell him things. And I'm, and I'm telling him, look, I can't, you know, I, I have a ethical code here. I have to follow and I'm sorry. And, he, you know, and he was super intimidating and, you know, would say to me things like if he, he was, I was on the phone with him for like over an hour and, or somewhere around there, hour ish or something. And he, I was shaking, literally shaking as he was threatening to put me in jail. And I believed him because if a cop wants to put you in jail, they can do so. Absolutely. They could plant something on you. They could, you know, get you, they could, you know, sort of, uh, get you into a situation where you start fighting back. And then, you know, so, so his threats were real. Then he goes to the older boy and he starts interrogating him and saying, you've been sexually abusing your younger brother, right? And the older boy's like, no, I have not been. And he's like, well, actually your therapist, Kirk Honda told me that you are sexually abusing your younger brother. And the boy's like, what? My therapist told you that I, that I told him that I've been sexually abusing my younger brother. That's crazy. He's like, yep, your therapist told me that. So you might as well confess and blah, blah. Well, the boy at the next, at the next session refused to talk to me naturally. He was extreme. Not only was he, you know, didn't want to talk to me, but he was extremely hurt and angry at me, which naturally he should be. And this cop, uh, basically ruined my relationship with this family and made it so that months of hard work that I'd been, 
you know, doing with this family was basically just not only put to an end, but reversed all everything, you know, things got much worse after that, all because this cop decided to lie to this kid. And so I went to his supervisor, I called the detective supervisor and I told him the whole story. And the supervisor was like, you know, he's, he was listening. He's like, okay, I hear you. I, I hear that. Okay. Yeah, I could see how you'd be upset about that. Yeah. Okay. And I said, okay, well, now that you've heard the story, what are you going to do about it? And he's like, well, uh, actually nothing. I, I, there's nothing I can do. And I'm like, what do you mean there's nothing you can do? This, this guy needs to be stopped. And the supervisor's like, um, well, actually police officers, they can say whatever they want to when they're interrogating somebody. They can say, and they can say whatever they want to when they're interrogating somebody. I, I, that's just there's something wrong with that. You, you shouldn't be allowed to say whatever you want and and lie and convince someone of something that that's just that doesn't seem right to me. It's not right to me. It's immoral that 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 this guy and and by the way, the it was later found that all the allegations were unfounded and the younger kid was just making up a story to manipulate the situation as most of us knew right from the start. Uh, and so this, this, and this cop had done other things to me as well. The same detective and I would run into each other now and then, and, and he was always, always this super asshole. And there's just no oversight. There's no rules. There's no ethics. There's no consequences. Now, these are changing, of course, but particularly back in the time of Christine Collins' time, in the LAPD, it was particularly bad. But, uh, and I've talked about this before, uh, in my profession as a therapist, I do not have total power. If I do something wrong, I can get in trouble and I can lose my license and there's a, or I can get sued and there are real consequences. I don't have the ability to really push back on that. Um, if, if I do something bad, like it could be all over for me. And that's the way it should be. Whereas if you're a police officer and things are changing, I know, but uh, in general, if you have a, a system in which you give a, an organization complete power and no oversight and no consequences for doing anything wrong, then, then you get abuses, just like this abuse on Christine Collins. Okay. The third point I want to make here Number one, sexism. Number two, unchecked police power. The third thing I want to talk about here is the press pressuring the police. We talked about this in the Amanda Knox case in which the press and the, you know, all the people were pressuring the police to find an answer, you know, with Christine Collins and Walter Collins, that the press and the public were like, you, you got to find that it was a national search for this Walter Collins kid. And there was all this pressure on the LAPD to find Walter Collins. Well, that's part of the problem. You know, Lindy Chamberlain in Australia with the dingo. Uh, there's many other cases like this where these high-profile cases essentially create a kind of frenzy in the community and in the police department. And when you're, you know, when you, when you're manic as a police force, you end up making bad choices and you end up getting desperate. And that's what happened here was because they, they were under so much scrutiny of the press and the people, they basically forced this situation 
uh, you know, they basically forced Christine Collins to accept this mystery boy as Walter when under normal circumstances, they probably wouldn't have done that. But because they were in so much pressure, they were like, we got to find a solution here. And so we got to make this happen. So now I know this contradicts what I was saying earlier in terms of oversight. You know, one of the best organizations to oversee the police force is the press and the people. But it's a different, there's a difference between scrutinizing and oversight and, and a system that provides consequences. There's a difference between that, like the system that therapists operate within, and pressurizing things. So what I say is scrutinize with a, with a good system of checks and balances, but don't pressurize the situation. We need to watch out for that as a society. And police forces need to protect themselves from that because, like I said, you pressure anybody and they start making stupid choices. Okay, number four, abusive psychiatry. This is um, perhaps, uh, I don't know, this is not the last thing I want to talk about. Actually, let me take a break, and when I can get back, we'll continue this conversation. Okay, we're back. If you are a non-patron, please become a patron today. Join the fold and get access to all the premium episodes and the feed that doesn't have any ads. If you don't like the ads, become a patron and you don't have to deal with any other ads. Okay, so let's talk about abusive psychiatry. Back in the day, there were all these abuses happening lobotomies, which is essentially just ca- causing brain damage. They would, they would take a, a ice pick and shove it through someone's eye socket, uh, not through the eye, but just above the eyeball. And they would, uh, with a hammer, literally with a hammer, they would shove this ice pick into someone's brain and kind of twist it around and essentially destroy the the brain matter that's in the frontal lobes, which is the part of your brain that's involved in, in decision-making and executive function. And essentially it just makes you kind of like um, just a non-person. So if you're being volatile or there's some, you know, you're presenting some sort of problematic behavior, if you give someone a lobotomy uh, in a lot of cases, it would end that behavior. But it would really end everything for the person. I mean, imagine just uh, taking, you know, all of your executive function offline or most of it. You know, it's it's really going to drastically change your personality. And and so that was happening it, during, around this time uh, and well into the, the 20th century. Also, electro, electroconvulsive therapy, you know, where they electrocute your brain. That was happening in abusive ways, in ways that were uh, not necessarily sound or justified or indicated, as they say in the profession. Uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is still being used today, but it's much more ethical and uh, actually helps people who are severely depressed. But perhaps that's a topic for another episode. So this, this whole case of Christine Collins being... Uh, forcefully admitted into a hospital reminded me of this really famous case, this really famous research study done by Rosenhan in 19, it was published in 1973. The Rosenhan experiment um, conducted by psychologist David Rosenhan at Stanford. The, uh, the 
the uh, article that he, uh, the study that he published was called On Being Sane in Insane Places. Basically, a bunch of people faked having auditory hallucinations. Um, so Rosenhan said, he coached all these people. He said, look, this is how you fake auditory hallucinations. I want you to go to different hospitals and get it and forcefully and make yourself get admitted into the hospital. Um, so a bunch of people faked having auditory hallucinations or, you know, so they go to these hospitals and they're like, I'm hearing voices or I'm hearing things. And they went to 12 different psychiatric hospitals. So not just one, but they went to a good sample, 12 different ones in five different States in, in the United States. And all the fakers were admitted and diagnosed as having uh, schizophrenia, I believe. Then after a day or so, the fakers acted normally and told the staff that they felt fine and, had, and were no longer experiencing any, uh, any hallucinations. So the, the, the important thing to really point out here is these fakers didn't have any other symptoms. They weren't, uh, their mood wasn't strange. They weren't violent. They weren't suicidal. They weren't depressed. They weren't anxious. All they said, they were completely without any mental illness. They would walk into a hospital and they, all they would say is I'm hearing voices or I'm hearing things that aren't really there. That's all they did. So we're talking minimal symptom. They didn't have to present all the schizophrenics. All they had, they, they just pre presented a tiny, a tiny little symptom of hearing voices, which is, you know, uh, a red flag for schizophrenia, but is not enough to, to diagnose for schizophrenia. And yet all these people were diagnosed and admitted. So then according to the script, the fakers the next day acted normally and told the staff, look, I feel fine and I'm no longer hearing the hallucinations. And the psychiatrists are like, huh. But all were forced, all the fakers were forced to admit to having a mental illness and agree to take antipsychotic drugs as a, as a condition of their release. So, and this is depicted in the movie, which I'm not sure if, if it really happened uh, in, in real life, but in order to be released, you're like, so instead of just saying, instead of the doctor saying, oh, well, if you're no longer experiencing symptoms, experiencing symptoms, then, you know, I guess you can go. And, but instead what they said is, okay, you have to, you have to admit and sign this thing saying that you have a mental illness and you have to agree to take these drugs upon leaving and then we'll let you go. Now, the reason for this is, is sound because the, um, uh, if someone actually does have schizophrenia, full-blown schizophrenia, before you release them, you should probably get them to agree to do some treatment. Now, today, they would have a much more elaborate discharge kind of system in which you would be in contact with social workers, therapists, and other kinds of people. But back then, they just didn't have those kind of resources, I guess. So the average time that the patients spent, these fakers spent in the hospital was 19 days 19 days. So the hospitals retain. So, uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right is that they only said they had auditory hallucinations. And then the next day they said, I'm fine. And then for three weeks, almost three weeks later, and for some people more, the hospital, you know, kept them in the hospital, even though not only did they not really qualify for a mental illness, but they were clearly not suffering from mental illness after day one. 
So after this, uh, Rosenhan is like, wow, what a finding. And Rosenhan tells the hospital, she's like, uh, by the way, so this is what I did. Um, you know, do you want to provide a response? The hospitals got mad and they demanded that he send the fakers back to their hospital so they could prove that they are competent at detecting the fakers. So Rosenhan is like, oh, okay, let's, this brings another twist to my study, but okay, I'll send the fakers back to your hospital and, and I'll get new fakers so you don't recognize them and we'll see if you can actually detect them. Let's give it a few weeks. So after a number of weeks, the hospitals come back to Rosenhan and they say, ha ha, uh, we, had, we had 193 new patients, 193, and we successfully identified 41 fakers. We're pretty sure that, uh, you know, fairly confident, uh, you know, that of our 193 new patients, uh, 41, that's about a quarter of our patient of these of these new patients, they are fakers. You must these are these forty pe- these forty one people must be in your study, right? And Rosenhan looks back at them and he says, "Actually, I didn't send any fakers to your hospital. All those people, I, I don't know who they are." <laughs> Which he was bluffing the whole time. I just think that is brilliant. I mean, the guy is a genius. Instead of actually sending fakers, he just intuitively knew or guessed that. You know, okay, I won't send any fakers and we'll just see how incompetent they are because they'll probably come back saying that they found a bunch of fakers. 41. They, they claim they found 41. So the, the larger thing about all this is that diagnosing is tough. Psychiatric di- diagnosing is tough. It's mostly self-report or behavioral observations, which can all be faked. And there are, there are famous cases in which people successfully fake a disorder for decades, um, the head of the uh, New York, New Jersey mob did that for decades and uh, managed to elude authorities because everyone's like, oh, he has schizophrenia, even though he never did. And so, um, you know, there's no biomarkers. When you have a broken bone, you take an x-ray and you, you see a break in the bone and you diagnose a broken bone. When someone has schizophrenia, there's nothing like that. You can't x-ray the brain and find it in the brain. It's all based on report. Someone talks to you and tells you as a diagnostician what their experience is. And that's a, you know, that's a very squishy science. But psychi- psychiatrists and psychologists hate to admit this. And I've been, in an, I've been in so many arguments with professionals around this. They're just like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I can tell. Particularly forensic people. I know there are people out there listening that are forensic psychologist people. I took a number of courses in forensic psychology in my doctoral program. And I, I, kept, I kept asking questions. Because like, we had this, me- you know, there's a measure. There's a number of, of tests that psychologists can administer to detect whether someone is malingering or faking. And these, uh, these measures will, you know, likely capture some fakers, but they're probably going to let some fakers get through. If the faker is really good at faking, then it's really hard to detect them. But, and I would challenge these experienced, you know, professors and forensic psychologists. And I would say, so how, how do you know you're not letting people get through? Because it was a high stakes thing. Cause you know, a lot of these situations are in prisons. Or in you know people who uh, are claiming uh, that they were insane at the time of the crime, they were mentally incapacitated at the time of the crime, and 
there's a lot of people who would fake that. And there's a lot of forensic psychologists who claim they are a hundred percent right all the time that they can absolutely tell when someone's faking and when someone's not. And I would say, how do you know that exactly? <laughs> because if, what if someone's really good at faking or what if someone's psychiatric disorder looks like a fake or what if someone is just really inconsistent with the way they answer questions and it seems like they're faking when in fact they're not actually faking. And these psychologists, you know, always, every time would just be like, no, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, you know, you, when you gain experience, you just know. You, you run the tests and you provide your opinion. And I think it has to do with court, you know, like talk, when it, if you ever talk to like a court lawyer or anyone that, you know, frequently goes to the court, they are in love with their opinions, in my opinion. You know, it's just the way the court operates. You, you can't, if you're a lawyer and you're fighting for your client, you can't go into court and say, well, I don't know, I can kind of see both sides. You, you can't do that. You'll lose right away. You have to come in and say, I'm 100% sure, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of these forensic psychologists, a lot of these diagnosticians kind of come from that uh, ilk. And it's just, um, it's stupid. Uh, and we would just do so much better if, as a profession, we could just admit, look, we just don't have the technology to measure for sure if someone is faking or not. We can, you know, sort of zero in on an, on an opinion based on data, but, you know, it's hard to tell in some cases. And if someone's really good at faking, then it's, then it's, you know, it's pretty hard, pretty hard to tell. Now, having said that, I'm sure some of you out there, forensic people will say, I'm one of the good ones. I recognize the ambiguity and will tentatively provide conclusions. And to you, I say kudos, but to the others, I say no kudos for you. Okay. So now it should be pointed out that the Christine Collins you know, situation in which she's involuntarily committed and the psychiatrists just kind of go along with that. This sort of thing is much less likely to happen in today's world due to ethical codes and training and due to worries about a malpractice suit and, 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 and really due to lack of funds for hospitalization. I mean, when you hospitalize someone, it costs a lot of money. It's a lot of money. I mean, you'd be, if you've never been involved in that, you'd be surprised how much money it costs uh, to go to the hospital overnight. You know, all the technology and the nurses and the doctors and the janitor and the heat and the, the, the you know, everything has to get paid for. And it's, it's a lot of money. And so in today's world of managed care and of of, you know, scrutinizing every penny spent in healthcare, it is hard sometimes to get a hospital to take a patient because they're saying, look, you know, we just, you know, we don't have any money. We don't have any funds to pay for this person to come in. So in today's world, it's, it's sometimes more difficult to get someone in committed than, uh, than otherwise. But that's a complicated issue uh, that I won't go into. But the point is, is that the Christine Collins situation isn't likely to happen uh, nearly as often today. But I'm sure it still does. Um, I had a client, for instance, that uh, he he was nearly hospitalized involuntarily because he supposedly had bipolar. People were 
psychiatrists and whatnot were diagnosing him as having bipolar and they almost admitted him as being a harm to people. But he did, he clearly did not qualify for the diagnosis. Uh, They didn't, the, the psychiatrist didn't even consult with me, even though I was his ongoing therapist. Basically the client suffered from a recent loss and he was a very extreme traumatic loss and he was, he was grieving and he was terribly depressed and he was terribly upset, which is natural when you are going through acute grief. And, uh, but his, his family were, uh, convinced that his behavior was indicative of a mental illness and didn't really recognize that it was grief. And so they moved to try to get him involuntarily committed. But I stepped in and told everyone to calm down. I said, give him some time. He's, he's grieving right now. All of his emotions and his behavior is totally in line with grief. And, you know, let's just, let's take a couple of days and take a breather. I realize everyone is worried about him. You know, we'll get through this. If he still is, you know, presenting problematic behaviors in a week, you know, we can revisit this. And so they agreed, and in a couple of days, he was fine. But, you know, I'm guessing that other people today, in today's world, don't fare as well. You know, they, they probably get railroaded into a situation, get committed when they didn't really need to be. Now, having said that, um, psychiatric wards are not terrible places to be. <laughs> um, you know, for those who don't know about psychiatric hospitals... If you just look at what's in the movies and and whatnot, it it, it seems just like you know a a, a sort of uh, what a, uh, like a medieval torture chamber or something. It, it's not that at all. In fact, I know people who do have mental illness who actually kind of like going to the psychiatric hospital every now and then because it's it's a comfortable place, you know. You got some nice, you could play games, you can watch TV, you can, you know, you, you know, a nurse is always there. You can get stable. You can kind of get away from your stress. Um, you know, it's not like a, a, a resort, but uh, it's not the sort of terrible, terrible place that is often depicted. And there are, there are a lot of really nice, wonderful people who work in these psychiatric hospitals today and uh, would never want to detain someone against their will when they didn't need to be. Now, the case I was talking about earlier, the guy who was just grieving and was almost you know, involuntarily committed, I want to point out that he is a privileged, educated, wealthy dude. You know? um, and he had a therapist, me, who knew him and was advocating for him. If it were a different context, you know, he wasn't privileged and he wasn't wealthy. I'm sure the situation, or I'm guessing the situation would have, you know, played out differently. Okay. So one, we had sexism. Two, we had police power. Three, we had stop pressuring the police as much. Four, we have abusive psychiatry. And number five, this is just a kind of a small thing I pulled away from the story, is that psychopaths have existed throughout history even in the 20s, which is often romanticized by the media. You know, 1920s are supposed to be awesome, right? It, it's things like this that remind me that the world is not going down the tubes. <laughs> Either the world has always been going down the tubes or it has never been going down the tubes because psychopaths 
these terrible, terrible people have existed throughout history. And uh, I don't know. I just find that to be oddly comforting in some way. <laughs> okay. So the last thing I want to talk about here is advocacy. You know, there were many important figures who advocated for the rights of Christine Collins and perhaps the rights of mothers, the rights of citizens against the police, the rights of women. There was the reverend, the minister who fought against, and he was white, by the way, a white, older white male, the reverend who fought against the LAPD and advocated for Christine Collins. There was a high-powered lawyer who, again, older white guy, who took on Christine Collins' case pro bono when, you know, how she successfully sued uh, Captain Jones. She didn't have the money to pay a lawyer, but this lawyer came forward and said, "Um, I believe that this is a good cause and I'm going to do this case for free because someone's got to put a stop to this sort of thing. You know, the, the Constitution of the United States and, the, and, this, and our state constitutions, they're written to protect the people. The law is set up to protect the people. It's on, the law is on our side. The Constitution is on our side. We can all do stuff like this. We can all be a Christine Collins. We can all be that minister. We can all be that lawyer. You know, we need, we need to, you know, I don't like Twitter. I'm not a Twitter fan, but so bear with me. But, you know, we need to stop. We need to stop using Twitter and we, do, we need to start actually doing something. You know, Twitter, fine. If you use Twitter, it's fine. But if that's all you do, you know, there's other things you can do. When an opportunity arises, you know, do something. Like, when I discovered that, I've talked about this on other previous episodes, but when I discovered that immigrants in Seattle uh, were being oppressed and being treated unfairly by the police and by, by child protective services, I did something about it. I, I worked for months on a proposal to the government to provide education to parents about what the law says about child abuse. I, I, you know, guessed that if we could just educate immigrants on our laws, they'd be much less likely to break our laws and therefore much less likely to be humiliated uh, if it comes out that they are, you know. So the case was that uh, an Asian family immigrated to Seattle and no one told them that in Washington state, it's illegal to do particular parenting practices, particular corporal punishment practices. It's actually illegal to, to do those things to your kids. Whereas in your old country and frankly around the globe, this is routine for parents to use against their kids. But in Washington, it's illegal, but no one tells the immigrants this. And so they continue to practice parenting. They would back in the old country. And then if it comes out at school or at daycare or something, they immediately get in trouble and they get rounded up, even though their law about, they want to follow the law. And if only we would just tell them, then, you know, 99% of these cases would probably be eliminated, which would save a lot of people that suffering. It would um, help people comply with the law and it would save us a lot of money because we spend a lot of money chasing these people down when it's probably not worth it. 
And so I, I put this whole proposal together to uh, have the government allocate a minimal amount of money to educate immigrants. You know, it's just a flyer, essentially. It's just like a piece of paper. You just give them and say, read this in your native tongue, and it'll explain to you, you know, the laws. Um, and it, and just incidentally, as a demonstration, I whenever I present this proposal, I send out a, a quiz uh, to people who are born and raised in Washington State. So, you know, we're talking, you know, American Americans, and I, I give them this quiz, and I say, uh, and it, and it's a quiz about, uh, whether or not they understand the law regarding corporal punishment and they, everyone always fails that test. So even people who are born and raised in Seattle do not know the law, uh, regarding corporal punishment, uh, for kids. Cause it's very complicated. Actually, the law is extremely, uh, complicated and specific and kind of strange. Uh, it makes sense to me, but it's, it's, it's very complicated. And, uh, so if people born here don't know the law, how can we expect immigrants to know the law? <laughs> anyway, so when I came across this, I decided to use my power and my privilege as someone as someone who was you know born and raised in, in Seattle, someone who has the power as a as someone in psychology to uh, write up a, a proposal in a way that will be respected. Um, I had figures in there. I have access to research and, uh, you know, I have access to the government. I know people I can talk to. And so I, I did that. Now I completely failed because they never granted the proposal. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I failed horribly. No one, you know, everyone I talked to at child protective services were like, Oh my God, this is a great proposal. Yeah. Let's get, let's get going with this. But the people actually, you know, pull the purse strings, um, did not go for it. And I kept trying and kept failing. But, you know, I did something. And I know many of you out there are doing similar things. And I commend you for that. Kudos for you. Our society is built on that kind of advocacy, uh, similar to the stuff that Christine Collins did and her team of people did. You know, Christine Collins, she didn't give up. Even though they kept intimidating her, she could have gone away and said, okay, I guess I'm now taking care of this boy because no one's listening to me. I guess I am, yeah, I, I, they, they locked me up in, in, a, in a mental health hospital. I, I give up. I'll go home. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up and I'll, and I'll do what the police are telling me to do. But she didn't do that. She kept at it like Rosa Parks on the bus, like the Greensboro sit-ins, like the Standing Rock people today. Peaceful protest, peaceful protest, and intelligent adv advocacy, you know, strategic, smart advocacy. That's how we've come this far in our society, and that's how we're going to progress into the future. Pot is legal in Washington. Gay marriage is is legal, is recognized. Women can vote. Slavery has ended. We are always moving forward in our society. And it's all based on actions of people like this, like Christine Collins. She was one of those heroes that pushed back against the tyranny 
and never had to raise a hand against anyone. She was never violent because violence begets violence. Sometimes violence is justified, but often violence begets violence. Hostility begets hostility. Name-calling begets name-calling. In today's divided political landscape, it's important to follow in Christine Collins' footsteps. She didn't call people names. She didn't tweet about anything. She just kept at it. She said, no, this is not going to work. And I'm going to make my case and I'm going to, I'm going to get support and I'm going to get a team of people together and we're going to go to court and I'm going to sue you. Now, it, it was a, it was a, a Pyrrhic victory in some way because the police, uh, chief and captain eventually got their jobs back and the police captain never had to pay. So it wasn't a complete victory, but it was a small victory along the road for progress. And we could all follow Christine Collins example by taking peaceful action, by taking strategic, intelligent, advocating action. All right. Well, that does it for the episode. Thanks for listening. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.